chapter 12. And as we did this morning, we're going to be reading beginning in verse 10 of chapter 12 through the end of chapter 13, looking at these two trials that Abram experienced early in his life of faith, one to which he responded negatively, he failed the trial, and the second he responded positively, he triumphed in the trial. And so we're learning from his trials, and we're going to begin reading in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. 
I will make your offsprings the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. We've already spent a good deal of time looking at two truths from these passages. Uh, The first is that we saw that trials will come in the Christian life. And the second is that how we respond to those trials has consequences. But now we come to our third major truth, which is that God is with us in our trials. Our passage never states this directly, but we know that it's true from numerous other passages. And if we're to understand this passage well, if we're to understand the gravity of what's happening in this passage, we need to have in mind that when Abram left Canaan and went to Egypt, he didn't leave God in Canaan. That God was with him. In each of these trials, every decision that Abram made, every word that he spoke, every action that Abram took, it was all done before the eyes of Almighty God. Our God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Jeremiah 23, 24 says this. Listen to this. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Solomon, when he dedicated the temple to God, He cried out, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. How close is God to us? Acts 17, 28, In Him we live and move and have our being. So our God is everywhere. And yet, we already know that, but while we know that our God is everywhere, it is important for us to remember that God is especially present with His people. He is with His children in a unique way. He isn't just here with us. He is here for us. He is here to see all that we endure, to sustain us, and to provide grace for us. Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. God could have easily said to Abram, when you pass through this time of famine, I will be with you. It is this truth that David is meditating on in in Psalm 139, this truth that, that even in the midst of trials, in the hardest seasons of our lives, even in those moments that seem extreme and dark to us, God is still with us. David says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. This is a time of trial, right? The the, the darkness is covering me. The light that I see is not even really light. It's night to me. That's the trial David's going through. He says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. It's an encouraging thought, is it not? That God is with us in these trials that He brings our way? No matter how great the difficulty, He does not intend for us to go it alone? That even as He tests our faith, He gives us every reason to keep believing on Him because He stands right beside us to give us all we need, to hold us up? In other words, Abram did not need to be deceptive when he came to Egypt. Had God not promised that he was going to keep him alive at least long enough to give him offspring? Was God not right beside him to protect him? Could Pharaoh and his men have laid a hand on Abram to hurt him or to steal his wife if God was against it? Abram's failure in Egypt was a failure of faith. Though God had given him every reason to trust him, in this situation, Abram did not. He was looking at his circumstances and he allowed the scariness, it's not a word, the whatever, the scariness, we're going to make it a word, he allowed the scariness of his circumstances to be more in his view than the sovereign God who was with him. Have you ever done that? You ever been there? Though the God who created the galaxies is right beside you to care for you, and though He has a promised, He has promised not to allow anything to happen to you that is not for your good, yet in some moments you focus more on the scary circumstances than on your glorious God. Reminds you of Peter taking his eyes off Jesus, doesn't it? And when he took his eyes off Christ and began to, to look at the, what he was doing, I'm walking on water. Immediately the fear came in, and what began to happen? He began to sink. John Bunyan knew what it was to experience long, hard, heart-wrenching trials. He wrote a little book called Seasonable Counsels, Advice to Sufferers. Remember, this is a man who spent, if I remember right, I think it's 14 years in prison because he would not agree to stop preaching the gospel. He had, he had a blind daughter who would come and visit with him, and he so longed to be with his family, particularly he writes about how he longed to be, be there to care for his blind daughter, but he could not because of being in prison for his faith. In this book, Advice to Sufferers, John Bunyan wrote that the key to trials is, quote, Learning to live upon God that is invisible. It's learning to trust in God, rest in God, lean on God's everlasting arms, even though we can't see Him and we can't see our circumstances. I cannot see God, but I believe His Word and therefore I know He is with me. 
And therefore, I will fear no famine, and I will fear no Pharaoh, and I will walk in integrity. Had Abram thought that way, he could have spared himself, he could have spared his wife, he could have spared Pharaoh and Pharaoh's household a whole lot of trouble. But he did not think that way in this moment. It's not only trusting that God is with us, God's presence in these trials that helps, but it is also realizing that the God who is with us is the God who is sovereign over all these things. He is a mighty God, a powerful God. He's like a a doctor, a kind and compassionate physician who is working to help us be healed. And to help us be healed, he brings us medicine trials. And the medicine isn't always pleasant. It can be painful. It It can hurt. But the whole time, our God stands beside us while the medicine is taking effect. And if we trust Him, He holds us up. You see, the God who is with us is the God who brought the trial. He is the God who appointed it for us. It is He who ordains the trials we'll face. It is He who ordains when we'll face them. It is He who ordains how long we'll face them. And when you you come into a trial and you know the God who is bringing this into my life and has ordained it for me and has ordained how long it will last and when it will end, He is beside me to uphold me, that's encouraging. That your trial isn't coming to you from an enemy. This trial is coming from a friend. Robert Lighton, wise commentator, said this, Let us learn that with respect to our present frailty, we are frail people, aren't we? Trials are necessary. Let us learn that trials are necessary so that we will not set our hearts on being exempt from them, no matter how calm our seas may be at present. For their number their frequency, and their strength, we totally commit into the hands of our wise Father, who knows perfectly our makeup and our illnesses and what kind and quantity of discipline is necessary for us to be cured. You ever thought about it that way? I can't remember if this is coming up later in my sermon or not, so I'm going to say it now. I don't think I said it this morning. It's like a personal trainer. Right? You ever been to a personal trainer? And a personal trainer, it, it, it's a different plan for each person. They, they customize it. They want to they learn what is the best way to help you. And so for you and your needs, we need to craft these exercises. And we need you to put you on this diet. Well, what Robert Lighton is saying here is the God who ordains these trials for us knows us intimately more than we know ourselves. He knows exactly what we need. And so he crafts our trials particularly for us to help us in those areas where we most need help. It is not only a comfort to know that it is the sovereign God that is with us, it is also good to know that he is a wise God and that every trial he brings has a purpose. That God is truly working for our good. Listen again to John Bunyan. There is that of God to be seen in the day of trial as cannot be seen in another. 
his power in holding up some, his wrath in leaving of others, his making of shrubs to stand and his suffering of cedars to fall, his infatuating of the counsels of men and his making of the devil to outwit himself, his giving of his presence to his people and his leaving of his foes in the dark, his discovering the uprightness of the hearts of his sanctified ones and laying open the hypocrisy of others, all of this is a working of spiritual wonders. We are apt to overshoot. Listen carefully to this. We are apt to overshoot in the days that are come and to think ourselves far higher and more strong than we find we be when the trying day is upon us. We could not live without such turnings of the hand of God upon us. We should be overgrown with flesh if we had not our seasonable winters. It is said that in some countries trees will grow but will bear no fruit because there is no winter there. I hope you caught what he was saying there. How important these winters, these seasons of trial are in our lives that they are necessary for us in order for us to be who we, Christ hasn't planned for us to be. When Abram is back in Canaan, worshiping again, calling on the name of the Lord, freshly reminded of God's presence and God's power, then it is that he is able to respond well to the trial. Right? What's the difference between the way he responds in Egypt and the way he responds with Lot in Canaan? Well, one difference is that in Egypt, he seems to have left off the worship of God. He seems to have left off calling on the name of the Lord. But in Canaan, between Bethel and I, here he is again calling on the Lord, knowing that his God is with him. And therefore, he's able to respond well in the trial with Lot. Take this to heart. Knowing that our good, wise, sovereign God is with us, that he has ordained our trials, and that he will work work good through them, will help us to do well and to keep believing when they come our way. But knowing that God is with us in our trials is also sobering because it means that every time that we choose not to trust Him, every time that we act sinfully, we do so right before His eyes. Here is the God who has come to us in sovereign grace and graciously, mercifully called us out of wickedness and drawn us to Himself. Here is the God who has come to us with great promises that we do not deserve and He is going to bless us beyond our wildest dreams. Here is the God who has saved us at the cost of His own Son. A God who has been nothing but merciful and kind and compassionate to us. And with this God right beside us, indeed, with this God right before us, will we say to Him, in this situation, I trust me more than you. And yet we do that pretty often, don't we? What more does God need to do to earn our trust? And it's not as if he owes that to us. He doesn't need to earn our trust. He would be perfectly fine 
He would be perfectly just to say, if you don't want to trust me, fine. I will leave you high and dry. You can go your own merry way down the road to hell. And yet he doesn't do that. Even when we are unfaithful to him, he remains faithful to us. Will you not trust this God? He is with us in our trials. Finally, the last point of our four is that God responds to our failures and to our successes. He responds to our failures and our triumphs. In both of Abram's trials, we see God take action. We see God respond. In the first passage... God takes action. He responds to the failure of Abram by afflicting Pharaoh and by afflicting Pharaoh's household with plagues so that Abram's deception comes to an end. In the second passage, it is God who comes again to Abram and brings again those promises to bless him because of his triumph, because of his faith. You make three statements about how God responds to us and our failures and successes. I'm going to spend most of my time on this first one because it's very important. God responds to our failures with mercy. There will be times when you and I are tested and we fall. Rather than trusting God and responding to Him in a way that would be Indicative of someone who trusts him. Rather than responding to him, rather than responding to the trial by looking to him, looking to his word, saying, God, you are wiser than me. You know what is best for me. You tell me how to respond. Your will be done. Rather than responding that way, we respond out of anxiety. We respond out of anger. We respond out of just, I think this way is best, regardless of what God says. And we fall right on our faces. We all do that. And the result is harm to us. Often the result is harm to others. Often the result is harm to our Christian witness. We will all have our Egypt moments. But God in His great grace does not forsake us. Even when we are unfaithful to Him, if we are truly His, He will keep us. God will allow his children to fall, but he will only allow them to fall so far. God would have been perfectly just not to have intervened in the situation in Egypt. He could have allowed Sarai to stay in the harem of Pharaoh. He could have allowed Abram to stay in Egypt till his dying day, gaining wealth through his deceitful ploy. As Abram lived in sin, day after day, in this deception and this dishonesty, his his actions would have taken their toll. His heart would have grown hard and dull to the things of God. Sin unrepented of and sin undealt with will ultimately kill the faith of any person. It's like a, a poison... And if the antidote of repentance doesn't come, it will continue to spread until we die spiritually. Abram could have been utterly lost 
had God not intervened to drive him out of Egypt and back to his God. Here is how God deals with his children. When he has set his mercy on someone, he will let them fall, but only so far before he steps in to show them mercy. He will find ways to move them from where they have strayed back to where they should be. In this case, God intervenes to get Abram and Sarai back together, back in Canaan, worshiping him again and calling on his name truth that I'm speaking of here is a truth called the preservation of the saints. Everybody say preservation Preservation. of the saints. Though God will bring many trials into the lives of his people and sometimes allow them to fall, yet he will preserve them and he will bring them still believing to their deaths and into eternal life. I know that there are some in our own community and in this world, who believe that there can be genuine children of God who are utterly lost. That they believe for a time and then they fall away and are utterly and eternally lost. They once were children of God and they are children of God no longer. They once were saved and now they are saved no longer. I want to remind you why we believe that that is not true. Those who are truly God's children, though He will let them fall sometimes, He will only let them fall so far before He brings them back. So let me point you to three passages. First, look with me at John 6. Honestly, there's there's a lot of passages we could look at. This is not an unclear teaching in the Scripture. There are many passages that prove this point, but we're just going to look at three. Look with me at John 6. begin in verse 37. John 6, verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Friends, there are no loopholes in that passage. It is God's will that everyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And Jesus guarantees their preservation. I will raise Him up on the last day. There is no room here for someone who believes on Christ and then is lost to unbelief. Every true child of God who is being given by the Father to the Son as a part of His bride will be there on the last day. Look at John 10. I think this is even clearer. John 10, verse 25. 
John 10, verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. How clear is that? There are a group of people that Jesus calls His sheep. He says these are the ones that His Father is giving to Him. And then He he just begins rattling off all of these things that are true about this people called His sheep. He says, my sheep, they hear my voice. My sheep, I know them. My sheep, they follow me. My sheep, I give them eternal life. And my sheep, they will never perish no one will snatch his people out of his hand and just in case there's any doubt he points to the strength of his father he points to the power of his father to keep his people from being lost and he says I and the father are one in other words the same power of the father to keep people saved is the power exercised by Jesus Christ to keep his sheep saved Romans 8. Romans 8. Beginning in verse 29. Romans 8, 29. For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. Note this carefully. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This is what's called the great, unbroken, golden chain of salvation. There is a people that God foreknew. This word know in the Bible is a word of intimacy. It is a word of great love. Like when Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. It's that kind of word. It's a word of love. It's a a kind of covenantal love. And this word is in the Greek is the word for knowledge, meaning that God before loved a people. That there is a people that God knew in this way. He knew in a covenantal, loving way before the foundations of the world, and He set His love on them. And these people that He foreknew, we're told He also predestined. Predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. 
Do you think that there is anybody, any of God's sheep, any of God's people, any Christian that God predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son that is not going to one day be conformed to the image of His Son? God graciously determined their destiny. That though they would deserve His wrath, He would make them like Christ and set Christ over them as the elder brother. You see that there in verse 29. And these people that God had set His love on, these that He has predestined, were then told He called them to salvation. Paul was looking to, the, to those who had believed before his day. That's why he's speaking in past tense. He's speaking of all those who had, who had been saved up until his day. And he said, these people, they were foreknown by God. And those whom God foreknew, he predestined. And those whom God predestined, he, he called to salvation. This is not a, the call. Um, this is not using the word called the way Jesus used it. Jesus used the word called. He would say, many are called, but few are chosen. Meaning, there were, the call goes out to the world. Everybody is called, but only some are saved. Well, Paul's not using it the same way here. There is a sense in which the call of salvation is to go out to the world. Whosoever will, come, believe. But this word called is speaking of effectual calling. The kind of calling where Jesus stands over Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes forth. And so what Paul is saying here is that there is a people that God set His love on from the beginning of the world. He predestined them for salvation. And now, in His sovereign providence, the gospel comes to them and He calls them from spiritual death into spiritual life. And then He says, those whom He called, He also justified. Right? He declared them righteous in His sight. And those whom He justified, he also glorified, meaning he made them perfect. This word glorified, glorification in the New Testament speaks of being made perfect and right to be with God forever. And there is no room here for such a person as one who is justified. They believe on Jesus. They're declared, right, declared righteous in the sight of God, but they're not glorified. Something happens along the way and and they don't reach that day when they stand holy before Christ. There's no room for that here. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. By God's grace, those who are God's will be made perfect and will be with God in glory forever. He who began this good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Now, having said all of that, I don't want you to think for a minute that the way God keeps His children saved and keeps His children believing is easy or automatic. Because it's not. God has to use means. He doesn't have to, but God chooses to use means and He chooses to use methods to keep His children believing. And sometimes the means and methods He uses to take us from where we've strayed back to where we ought to be are painful and come with a lot of sorrow and heartache. Think about David and Bathsheba. Think about the great sin that David committed there. God brought David to repentance. God set David back on the path of faith. But to do so, it took a confrontation with the prophet Nathan, and it took the death of his infant son. 
This is how God brought David to his knees so that he cries out in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're told that there were people who were abusing the Lord's Supper. They were bringing food and drink for themselves to the feast, but the poor members of the church were over in the corner and they had nothing for the feast. And yet the wealthy of the church gave nothing to them but kept it all for themselves. And there was sort of this class warfare taking place in the church. And Paul says that this was a wicked sin and that because some in the church had gone so far as to be this way towards the poor, God was striking them down with sickness and even had brought some to die in order to bring this church to repentance. We remember how God used the crowing of a rooster to bring conviction and repentance to Peter, don't we? In the life of Jonah, we see all kinds of things that God uses. A storm and a boat and the wind and the waves and this big fish. And then later we have the hot sun and a plant and a worm that comes and eats the plant. And all of these things are being used by God to bring Jonah from where he strayed to where he ought to be. With his people Israel, God used famine. He used invasion. He used captivity. He used great destruction to bring his people to repentance. And to believe on Him. And so it is with us. And so it was with Abram. Here in Abram's life, we see that God brought plagues on Pharaoh. And on Pharaoh's household. God brings a confrontation in which this pagan, unbelieving Pharaoh comes to this man of God and charges him with wrong. Rather than the man of God exposing the wickedness of these unbelievers, God chooses to use an unbeliever to come expose the wickedness of Abram. And this is what it took to bring Abram to repentance. Abram is ordered out of the city. Pharaoh, even, if I understand what's being said here, Pharaoh's men actually help escort, escort uh, Abram out. He's literally driven out of the city with men making sure that he goes was very embarrassing socially. Yet God used all of these things to bring Abram to the place of repentance where we find him at the beginning of chapter 13. As the verse says, back where he was at the beginning. <laughs> Did you notice that? Chapter 13, back where he was at the beginning between Bethel and I at the altar calling on the name of the Lord. So friends, let this both encourage you and let this sober you. If you are God's, He will not utterly let you fall away. If your faith fails a trial, He will often let you fall to a place of great pain. Sometimes He will let you fall to a place of great wickedness, but He will bring you back. And you should rejoice in that. You should rejoice in His great love and His great mercy that He will only let you fall so far. But it should also scare you to think about what means He may have to use put you back on the path of faith. It is easy to leave the straight and narrow and to wander into other roads, but sometimes the path that we have to take to come back to the straight and narrow is a path through briars and bushes that hurt. So that was statement number one. 
God responds to our failures with mercy. And He does. Statement number two about how God responds is that God will not allow the failures of His children to derail His purposes. I'm only going to say a word about this, but I want you to notice it because I think it is very important. That God will not allow us to fail or fall in such a way that His purposes get derailed. Simply note that had God not intervened, Sarai and Abram... Is that my microphone doing that? Testing. One, two, three. Okay. We'll keep going. Had God not intervened, Sarai and Abram would have been forever separated. And God's promises to Abram would not have come true. That is, there is no indication anywhere in Genesis 12 that Abram was going to take any action to rescue his wife from Pharaoh's hand. Rather, we have this picture of him gaining wealth dishonestly through her being given to Pharaoh. And it takes only God intervening to make sure that his promises come true. Had God not acted, there would have been no Isaac. And there would have been no Israel. And there would have been no Jesus. Abram's actions in Genesis 12 put the very redemptive purposes of God in jeopardy so that in Genesis 12, when Abram is in Egypt and he is acting in a way that puts Sarai in danger, your salvation, my salvation, was in the balance. And so when God acted to get things back in order, to put Abram and Sarai back together in Canaan. He was doing so not just for Abram's sake. He was doing so for our sake. He was not going to allow Abram's sin to derail his purposes. So also today, Christians stumble and we fall into all sorts of sins. We fail time and time again in our efforts to share the gospel. We fail time and time again to represent Christ in this dark world the way we should. We look all around and we see churches that are filled with division and churches that are filled with bitterness and churches that are characterized by pride and greed and we might think, how in the world is God going to use these people to build His kingdom? Surely His plans will fail because we are a failure of a people. No. Despite all the failures and foibles of his children, God comes in mercy. Yes, God even comes in discipline. And through that, he will accomplish his purpose through us. He will not allow our failures to change his purposes for his glory, for our good. When our sin abounds, his grace will abound all the more to ensure that his purposes are accomplished. And finally... The third truth concerning how God responds to our failures and triumphs is this. That when we do have those moments of triumph and we do respond well in a trial, God responds with blessing. Thankfully, by God's grace, we do not always fail, do we? Can you say that? (laughs) Can you say, there have been trials of faith that have come into my life and by God's grace, I responded well. 
but only by His grace. (laughs) I'm not going to start patting myself on the back here. I'm going to give glory to God. But as we grow in Christ, more and more, we should find ourselves holding fast to Him in the toughest of situations. As we become mature Christians, we should be more and more characterized by a steadfast faith that looks to Him first and foremost in any trial so that we respond well. When we do that, we must give God the glory for it. And when it happens, God tends to respond with blessing. When we continue to trust Him, he places, his, he places His blessings upon us and causes good to come. Is that not what happens in Genesis 13? Abram trusts God, shows kindness towards his nephew, gives him first choice of the land, believes he's able to do that because he believes God's promise that all is going to be his one day anyway. And how does God respond? Abram, let's take a walk. Let's go north. Let's go south. Let's go east, let's go west. Abram, scope it all out. Survey the land because it's all going to be yours. It's all going to be your offspring. What an encouragement to Abram to have God restate that promise to him, to make it even more clear to him, to say, look here, look there. It's going to be yours. In Egypt... Abram's sin led him to great material gain, but he was out of step with God. Here, his good act has cost him the better land, and yet he has given greater joy and peace through God's word. It is better to have less and have peaceful, joyful communion with God than to have more and to not have that. So, we're going to close tonight the way we closed this morning the same three questions what is a trial that God had brought into your life what is it in your life right now where he is testing your faith he's saying will you look to me in this situation second if you look to Christ in this trial if you rest in him And if you look to his word to see how to respond, how would he have you respond? What would he have you do? And then third, will you not do it? Will you not trust him? Will you not respond as you know is right? For your own good, the good of those around you, the glory of God and your witness to the world. I'm going to send this out by reading for us one of the most encouraging passages in the Bible. I think this is the kind of passage that gives us the courage to do what's right in a trial. I'm going to close by reading Romans 8, verses 31 to 38. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including whatever trial you're going through, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does that not encourage you to trust Him? and to do as He would have you do in whatever trial you're in. I'll admit these were difficult sermons for me to put together because I don't know everything y'all are going through. This is one of those sermons where you have to do the application. So, go home and do the application. How would God have you respond? How would God have you take this and make it real in your own life? Let's pray.